The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to the Artificiality Podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Helen. We are the co-founders of Saunders Scheme. We're very happy to have you with us here today. Uh, we're here today to discuss Helen's uh, latest work in courts, Q-U-A-R-T-Z, also QZ.com. Uh, she wrote a very uh, an awesome field guide about AI and bias and fairness that has multiple articles. The one we want to talk about today, though, is Are AI Ethicists Making Any Difference, uh, which is a, a great topic. You start off the... Um, the article by talking about there being a rush to hire AI ethicists in tech. Why is that? Well, um, the primary goal is, it, it sort of depends on, on how cynical you are. Yeah. Um, I think, I think in, in general, people are really well-meaning and they see that it's really important to overlay this process and these, this thought process about fairness and consequences of AI. Um, the more cynical view is that it's a PR and reputational play. Hmm. Uh, you actually are serving as an AI ethics advisor to a startup. Um, how do you think about that as, a, as that sort of conundrum? Uh, in a couple of different ways. First is that um, the role of, my personal view is that the role of the AI ethicist is, is one of um, not making decisions for people. Mm. It, it is actually a role that is about facilitation and is about getting diverse voices at a table and about a, a process. Mm. It is very much a process. And um, as I say in the in the piece, there um, when I was talking to um, Jake Metcalf from Data and Society, that he he says he thinks about ethics as the vessel and values are what goes in that vessel. And, and he's totally right when he says, we're actually quite good at talking about ethics. We're actually quite good at talking about process and structure and operationalizing things. We're not good at talking about values. So to me, the role of the ethicist is to foster that discussion where you talk about values and you um, open people's eyes to the fact that, that there is an intention that they have and an intention that the AI has, and then there's outcomes and consequences. And the difference with AI is that those outcomes and consequences uh, aren't always predictable and need to be designed. So do you think that your, your view that the role of the AI ethics officer or AI ethicist or whatever the title is, that, 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 that your view that that role is an important facilitator and the person asks questions, is that view commonly held in the tech firms that are hiring these people? Or do you think that's a somewhat of a contrarian point of view of the role of an AI ethicist? Um, 
I think it is a bit contrarian because we're at the early stages of understanding the role. Mm. So at the moment, we do have two different sort of ends of the spectrum. You have um, you know, Google hiring philosophers mm. and you have an in-house philosopher. And, and that sounds fine, um, but some of these principles are very abstract and they're really quite difficult. And um, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who are um, really managing AI ethics out of the legal department. And it's a very compliance-driven type of process and ethics basically means don't break the law. And really what I'm talking about is the piece in the middle where you're operationalizing some of these abstract principles in ways that real people can have real conversations and make tactical decisions about. Like they're not necessarily big strategic decisions because you know you can write an AI ethics principle that says we're going to be fair. But what does that mean? Does that, uh, you can, I mean, uh, many, many models will um, pit race against gender and you end up with fairness and race and unfairness and gender well someone's got to resolve that and that's the role of this process so i think that you know when there's a a couple of the people that i talked to were were quite provocative on this and uh, for i think when i was talking to annette zimmerman in uh, princeton she said to me i said what do you think of the, the the idea of a hippocratic oath for data scientists Mm. Uh, the do no harm idea and she said well if you don't want to do any harm don't take the oath because you can't avoid it the question is how do you get a group of people together to have a conversation about like who what's the minimum harm where should you where are the places that you should not um, deploy AI because there you're going to create harm so those conversations get quite nuanced and the other uh, you know really interesting um, uh, sort of controversial view is that you, how do you measure the 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 role the, the the effect of the ethicist and I think that's a fascinating yeah, what, what what kind of KPIs do you put in place yeah well then there are some there are some yeah I mean you can put in all the process ones mm. right so you know we work with people as you know on on helping people identify where decisions need to get made mm-hmm. by who now that's standard corporate stuff we're just doing it in a different in a different subject matter, in a different domain that hasn't existed before. So people need a lot of hand-holding to design that system. But the bigger measure, which I think is actually really important and um, was 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 uh, something that, that, that came up in the course of these interviews, uh, it, it, if you've got an ethics board, say, you, you know, this, this, say the one at Facebook, for example, mm-hmm. or the, and the one that was dissolved at Google, or whatever the committee is, is that committee able to look at a, a decision about an AI product and say, this product needs to be completely redesigned in order for it to meet our ethics standards? Mm. Is that something that they theoretically have permission to do? Do they sit in that room and know that that's something that's within their scope? Yes or no? Because that's kind of the big test, you know, if you have to send an entire product line back to the drawing board. Or is it more that they make a tweak on on a product and that that product is a little bit better Mm. and a little bit fairer? And, uh, And then the measure there is, is the benefit 
for the group that's that this is acting on the the customer group or the user group is that benefit bigger than the reputational value of having those people there making that decision it's a it's an extraordinarily difficult topic to try and quantify right there is no there isn't a method there there isn't a there isn't a measure that you can that you can you can you can actually sort of quantify the effect of an ethicist so how do you measure that it's interesting too when you talk about whether the ethics board has the the, the power um, to go in and make a change to a product or to pull a product from the shelf if it if it doesn't meet the 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 standards or the values of the company right does their um, you know uh, guiding the vessel the ship of ethics right that that's holding the values right like I like the Jake's you know phrase the vessel which which with, with which we use to hold our values so if they're captaining of the ship uh, can can that derail a product it's almost like creating a new role that you are potentially creating a new power dynamic in in tech where we traditionally will have engineering and uh, marketing, whether you know a product marketing team and uh, a design team that are all collaborating together on what a product will be, and there's pushes and pulls, and in different companies, different groups have more say over the outcome than others. But creating a new field, a new you know title, and a new organization around ethics potentially creates a fourth group there that I think must be quite difficult for companies to figure out how to manage. I think that is very difficult, and I did talk to an, a number of people. Um, about the, the the reality of that process. And the reality of that process is that there's an existing power dynamic. It's mm. either in, a, in the developed software process um, where you the development process has, it has project managers and software engineers and they've got a process that they follow and there's releases every week or whatever the process is. And this is a... This is not a natural fit mm. for that process. Um, even if people have been doing AI for years, it's still not a natural fit. So there's almost this two-step part. There's, there's what's different about AI, and then there's the what's the procedure to put on top of that. And it's, it's very, very difficult to um, put it into an existing process. And it, that, that, I guess, that process of, of some people call it activation. That process of getting things into code is quite um, experimental right now. People are still trying to figure out what makes that um, additive and expansionary rather than a burden. Mm. I, is is, is the, 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 the power conflict and, and challenge of fitting it into organization, is that what's driving the skepticism around AI ethics and this concept of ethics washing? That tech is actually just washing over the problem by 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 putting putting a name well at the at the high level there's been a couple of big failures mm. and and um, the google one is is the most high profile um so there's that but i think that the the real ethics washing comes from the fact that this is just a massive culture change mm. and that it's pretty visible that if you're if you're in these highly market driven um, very competitive, optimizing for one thing, which is you know kind of the the, the, the thing about AI, and that you um, and the power structure in these companies are that the engineers are the heroes. The engineers get this get to drive this, and that over the top of this is this 
you know, let's solve this technology problem with more technology as an ethicist where we really don't know what an ethicist looks like. I mean, do they, is an ethicist someone who walks in who's a minority and they're representing the minority or is an ethicist a professional trained ethicist that's a PhD or is an ethicist someone who's worked in these cross collaboration type of roles and is actually just really good at facilitating. Mm. We don't know what this animal looks like yet, um, but we do know what the animal of the marketplace looks like and we do know what the animal of, of technology looks like. So that's what people look for most of the time. I love uh, the quote you have in there from Josh Lovejoy when he said that big tech loves to break words and his prediction that tech is going to break the words ethics and bias. Do you agree with him? Are you, are you, do you, are you on that side of the pessimism that, that tech is actually going to, is going to break the word ethics? Um, yeah, I am. I wasn't when we started that conversation, <laughs> but I was by the end. And one of the reasons I was by the end was um, because it's coming from both sides. So you mentioned ethics washing. There's this countervailing view of ethics bashing which is basically all the people who are trained ethicists and have spent their careers in this field. And, you know, it's complex stuff. It's hard. It twists your brain around. And, and they come at it and go, who are all these rookies making, you know, trying to, it's like, boy, don't they pretend how to do ethics. And that, I think that's, I'm presenting a little bit of a sort of, strong view on that end of things but I think that it is coming to the point that it will break the word ethics because people won't know what it means anymore mm. it'll become like remember what it was like when we had sustainability and everyone was going to do sustainability as a word it became such a dead duck so quickly because people that worked in sustainability lost control of what it actually meant. And, and, and I think ethics is going to be more like that, where we bias might go the way of agile, where you know now there's a bias process or whatever. But I think ethics will, will become a very difficult word because it just sort of collapses under its own weight in the technology sphere. I, 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 not surprising, the, the, I, I would love to have a, um, a statistic of the number of people in tech and especially the number of people in engineering who took a course, at least one course in philosophy, right? Because what we're seeing, what we're sitting here is we're trying to create a mindset and we're trying to create a standard for a company around this thing called ethics, which is something that, as you say, is a word that people don't really even understand necessarily. They all have their own points of view. And when you actually go through studying philosophy, you'll understand that that's actually one of the core parts of philosophy is there's so many different points of view. It, there is no single set of standards. There is no single answer. There is no one and zero on and off. And I think that's very challenging to create a single idea. Now, if, on the flip side, that's part of the beauty, right? When, when we talk about it being a vessel for to hold values, that vessel can hold whatever values an individual or an organization has. There is no actual single answer how any company should act. The question is, how does the company organize themselves and make the decisions about what to put in that vessel? Yeah, and it, I think that the, the, one of the things that is is a unique challenge here mm. is, and I, you know, across my career, I, I really can't think of too many parallels to this. Um, the only one is, is essentially in HR, but 
we're talking about um, machines that have values instantiated in them by people and that is just sort of a reality and and it's mathematically defined but not mathematically resolvable humans have to sit there and make a decision about what they what those values are going to be so you know jake metcalf is very he, he he he's really clear you know we we um we need to get better at talking about values and we shouldn't expect a technology solution we've actually got to have a, a human solution and and he's quite right but i'm a real pragmatist on this stuff that there needs to be a way to have a, a conversation at the very top of the company get the executives really or at the top of government as well local government cities whatever school districts have people at the leadership level really understand how machines learn and why they're different why ai is different why it's world creating what why it's not the same as regular old technology if you like and then have a set of processes that bring in diverse groups right from the very top of the company to the bottom and customers, users, people across the supply chain, bring in the voices of the people who um, are stakeholders in that intelligence, and then translate it into stuff that people know how to deal with. You know, whether it's a checklist, you know, AI ethics checklists are, are really useful things. And be able to, you know, the, the jargon is to operationalize that. You actually have to operationalize these, the, these decisions and then let it happen and make sure it happens. So this whole ethics to governance process is just as important. It, it's, it seems um, uh, almost ironic that, that you're advocating checklists for something that is so abstract as a principle of ethics. You think about philosophers sitting around a cafe uh, you know, discussing things, the Sartre and Beauvoir and the existentialism word, or other people all throughout time sitting and having these very sort of thoughtful conversations, to then try and take that and operationalize it and checklist it seems almost counter to the, to, 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 to the principles. Well, maybe if they had, we wouldn't be in this situation <laughs> Maybe <now>. that's true. <laughs> no, I think that, I, I mean, I, there's always a both here. Yeah, sure. You, but the thing is that, you know, you do have limited time. You've, it, it, people are ruled by their, by their schedules and their calendars. So if you've got an hour to have a conversation about uh, whether you're going to have the same false positive rate for, for, for um, race or gender, you actually need to get to the bottom of that conversation. So um, I think that the, the the best way to think about checklists, when we wrote about this and it's it's on our on our public blog, uh, that the the most the, the most useful way to, to think about an AI che checklist is the scaffolding. You mm -hmm. know, it's enough framework to support the conversation so that you don't have to spend weeks going back and forth, or that you don't go into a white space zone. I mean, white space. Is just the the enemy of of development because it means that people aren't actually working together to figure out what the problem is. I like how you take the the concept of the checklist. You talk about it being a priority to develop techniques and practices that extend traditional roles. And I think that, that that's the thing that really clicked for me as I was reading this. I mean, obviously we advocate checklists. We we have them. We develop them. We we use them um, for these processes. But it was it was great to think about the connection between those checklists and why they work 
And the key reason that they work is that you're trying to embed these processes and techniques inside traditional roles. So giving people practical processes to work through is the way to bring an ethics decision making process into the you know the daily work life of all the other people. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if I was going to fast forward a year or whatever, I mean, I don't, I personally don't believe that these ethics boards are, are, are much use at all, unless you want to do it for a reputational and external mm. oversight perspective, like it's an external thing. So for the big tech companies, maybe, but I think for most companies, what you really need is is a is an, a, an AI ethics process that delivers to the leaders the things they need to know. So, you know, if I, if I was CEO of a company that had a number of different AI models out there running either customer support or, um, you know, inventory management or whatever you or employee hires, there would be key things that I would want to know about how often those models were um, checked for fairness, um, the fact that there was a process where we asked for fairness, because mm-hmm. if you don't ask for fairness, you won't get it. It'll, you'll only get what the AI is optimizing for. And I would want to know how much predictive power we had lost. Um, there are, uh, one of the conversations that I had with Michael Kearns at, um, uh, in Pennsylvania, he was, uh, he, he, he sort of outlined uh, when you get to these big models that are making profit and loss kind of like revenue predictions, you can lose millions with the tiniest change in your fairness criteria so i'd want to know that but i'd also want to know that what those how those fairness criteria were performing over time and what the different what the what the impact was on different groups so i'd I'd like to finish on 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 uh, one other uh comment from josh lovejoy where he talked about ethics need to be seen not as a philosophical add-on but as just good design no i love that I mean, but that's so Josh. Yes, and it's preaching <laughs> um, to the choir. Yeah, it is a bit. Because um, we, like we say, everyone's an AI designer now. Everyone. Um, if, you're, if, you, if you're a customer-facing facing person in a, in a, in a coffee shop, you're, you're an AI person when it comes to understanding the way that people respond to intelligent machines if you have them as part of your service um, provision. And I do think that this is, uh, once we... Um, put these things out and test them and have them running in the wild, good design should deliver this result back to us. Mm. Um, so I, I, I think that he's reflecting the, the coalface. He's reflecting what it means to be an AI designer in a, in a, in a company that, that um, is, is constantly looking at tuning mm. and developing and how, to, how, do you, how do you just make this seamless, which is a huge challenge. It is. It is. I think it's a great. It's a great reflection because tying back to what you said before, there's a. Um, if you think of a, um, uh, you know, ethics as the you know the vessel that holds the values, and a company as a collection of individuals that that express that create the values essentially of the company by being a collection of individuals. Everyone in the company has a say in what those values are that should be embedded in the AI, and because it is something where it's not like. Uh, it's unlike human employees where you hire people and they get attracted to your organization because of the values you have. They join, they affect them, but they, you, you hire them because they're a good value fit for the company. And AI, you actually have to specify what that value is 
to it because it has none on its own. Yeah, it we've never gets created. I mean, it gets designed. And there's no, there's not a great precedent, right? Here we are arguing about whether or not these pre-recruitment systems are helping with human bias because the human bias in recruitment is is pervasive, but we actually still can't articulate what it is about cultural fit. Mm. What is cultural fit? And we we used to have um, a saying in one of the companies I worked in, which w- it was a FIFO organization. You fit in or you fuck off. <laughs> and that you can't do that with a machine. You have to make sure it fits in from the start. <laughs> Uh, that's about the best comment I think we can have to finish this episode. I wasn't planning uh, on that. I know. Now you're going to have to put an E on the, I, on the podcast. It'll work out well. <laughs> anyway, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and uh, please check out the article in Quartz. Um, again, QZ.com. There's a whole collection of pieces here. It was quite a big, um, uh, big piece of work that Helen completed for them. Uh, and uh, and take a look at all the interesting links in there. There's a lot of great um, links to great research on this topic. Uh, thanks again, and um, check us out next week. Take care of each other.